0: Hi, I'm Tyler Saltsy, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu. Org. That's www.gbfperu.org I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of Acts, I draw our attention to the second chapter. And verse 42 this morning. And just by way of reminder, we're going through the book of Acts And we're thinking about Acts as it shapes, forms our church. This is the very beginning, the very birth of Christ's church. And so our prayer is that God would use this book in our church's life to continue to shape and mold and form us to the body that he wants us to be. And to remember that Jesus Christ is still working in the book of Acts Even though he died on the cross, even though he rose again from the dead, even though he ascended into heaven, what do we see in the book of Acts? The Lord, the risen Lord, the exalted Lord, continuing to work. And guess what? It hasn't stopped today. So out of reverence for God's word, as we go to it this morning, as we want to hear from it this morning, as we pray that our hearts are ready to receive it this morning, would you stand as we read together? Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that your word would pierce into our souls and into our hearts. That we might be changed by what your word Says to us, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. What are your priorities? And how do you determine what your priorities are? Do you determine your priorities by what you love? Do you determine them by what you have time for? Do you determine your priorities by what you think is important? However you prioritize your life, I would dare say that whatever is there at the top of the list, you have some form of devotion to that thing. You have a sense of commitment. But more than that, the devotion is not forced. The priority is there because you love it, because you cannot get enough of it. But as you begin to work your way down your priority list, I find in my own life devotion gets easier and easier and easier to ignore. And sometimes our devotion can easily vacillate between whatever we prioritize at any given time. So there's no consistency to our devotion. I understood this as a young boy growing up because I loved to be outside playing sports when I was growing up. And so when it was baseball season, I was a baseball player and I wanted to be a professional baseball player when I grew up. But when it was football season, I was a football player, and I wanted to be a professional football player when I grew up. But when it was soccer season, I was a soccer player, and I wanted to be a professional soccer player when I grew up. My devotion changed as quickly as the seasons came and as the seasons went. What about when it comes to devotion and church? How should we as Christians be devoted to the church? Should we be devoted to the church? And how about this? What should we as the church be devoted to? My fear is that sometimes we see church more like a club than the living body of Jesus Christ. What is the club mentality? I join. I pay my dues, I participate when it's convenient, I ensure that I get all of the advantages, and as long as I find it enjoyable, I'll remain part of it. Devotion to the church with that mentality really becomes all about you, when you want to, how you want to, what you get out of it. Is this the kind of devotion the Lord wants from His church? Or maybe sometimes we think I have to force my devotion. Well, I don't really want to go but I'll force myself to go. I'll pick myself up by my bootstraps. I'll paste a smile on my face. I'll grit my teeth and I'll go to church. Is that the kind of devotion that the Lord wants from His church? I find that true devotion The true devotion of the church is never something forced, but rather the devotion of the church is an evidence that the Lord is at work among His people. After Peter's sermon here in the book of Acts, chapter 2, we see a great influx of people come to repent of their sins, put their full trust in Jesus Christ, and be baptized as an outward demonstration and sign of their faith. In one sermon, 3,000 souls saved. And now we come to this part where there's a quick overview of what the early church just conceived would do, how they would now live. What was it that they did immediately after that day of Pentecost? What did their life look like now? And I think as we look at these verses this morning, Verse 42 is the key verse of our section of Scripture this morning because everything flows out of this verse. And this verse is so important because I would dare make the claim that this verse should be the paradigm for any church and even our church. If you want to see a true New Testament church If you want to see a healthy church, if you want to see a vibrant church, if you want to see a church that lines up with what Christ wants from His church, we have to look no further than this verse. And so would we see this verse, verse 42, as a measuring stick for us? As we look at the things the first church was absolutely devoted to, as we look at the priorities of the first church, would we take time? To reflect and make sure that these are the very things that we are devoted to. That these are the things that are of first priority in our minds and in our hearts. And let us not come to this verse this morning thinking that we have it all together, but let us let God's Word grip our hearts with these truths and show us areas, show us ways that we need to grow in our understanding, in our devotion, in our priorities, and in our health as Christ's church. So, four things this morning. Number one, as Christ's church, we are devoted to doctrine. Number one, as Christ's church... We are devoted to doctrine. We see from the very beginning of this verse, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And how even this first devotion runs completely contrary to modern thought today. Devoted to doctrine? Devoted to teaching? Sure, devoted in the academic sense of the word, yes, devote yourself to that. Go out into the institutions of our country and get degrees, get more education, get more knowledge, enlighten yourself, empower yourself, but devote yourself to the teaching of the Bible? Devote yourself to the teaching of the apostles? Too often the world would say, that's outdated. That's the teaching of ancient man. There may be things that we can glean here and there from these teachings, but to take the whole of them, to take everything, come on, it's just a bunch of old stories and fairy tales. Devoted to the teaching of educational institutions, yes, says the world. Devoted to the teaching of the apostles and the Bible, how the world would want to shame us for such an ignorant devotion in their minds. But this is exactly what the early church clung to. They clung to the apostles' teachings. They wanted to know what the apostles taught. And the apostles are those followers of Jesus Christ, particularly those 12 men who had been with Jesus, who had been there while he taught. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen him hang on the cross. They'd seen him again after he rose again from the dead. They had also seen him ascend into heaven. And these people wanted to know what these men taught because they believed it to be the truth. The apostles' teaching was absolutely necessary for the church because of what it emphasized. And so what what was the apostles' teaching all about? They emphasized the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. The apostles' teaching, to put it plainly, was all about Christ. It pointed people to Jesus Christ as the only one who could save them from their sins, as the only one who could cleanse them and bring forgiveness, as the only one who could give them the gift of eternal life from God. Jesus is the only way to God. This is exactly what Jesus had promised the apostles in the book of John. That the Spirit would come upon them and then they would be all about proclaiming Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in John 16, 13-14. This is what Jesus says. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare it To you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching meant the church was devoted to spirit led teaching. And spirit led teaching glorified, above all else, Jesus Christ. This is what Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered teaching, doctrine, preaching does. It glorifies Christ. If you want to find a church that is dominated by the Spirit of God, it's not a church that is preoccupied with the Spirit. It is a church that is completely focused on Jesus Christ. This was the apostles' teaching, focused, like laser-like focus on Jesus Christ. And the people were devoted to it. They wanted it. They couldn't get enough of it. They wanted to learn this doctrine. They wanted to internalize this doctrine. They wanted it to be so a part of their lives that it transformed them and changed them. They had a desire to bring this level of certainty and stability to their lives through what the apostles taught them. This was done by the validation of the apostles' teaching. And they might have thought, well, how can we trust these apostles? How can we know that what they're saying is true? What makes them so special? How can we know that what they teach is from God? Well, look here at verse 43 for a moment. This is the validation of their teaching. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God himself was validating the apostles' teaching. Similarly, that's how God validated Jesus Christ. Do you remember that from verse 22 in the same chapter? Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. How was Jesus validated before the people? God validated him through the many signs and wonders that he did. And now the wonders and signs done through the apostles was a demonstration that their teaching, their gospel proclamation was approved by God and even given by God. And so they could trust it because this doctrine was sound, true, healthy doctrine. It's the teaching upon which Christ builds His church with himself as the very cornerstone. It was this teaching that the people wanted from the moment they were convicted. You see that there, just a few verses earlier. They heard this and they were cut to the heart. And they cried out, Brothers, what must we do? And it was a cry, it was a plea for what? For teaching. Teach me. What do I need to do? We want to be obedient to the truth, but we we need to know the truth. We need to know what it is. Peter didn't say to them, well, it's enough that you've had some experience. You've had this great emotional response. That's enough. You don't need anything else. Sadly, how many people come to church today just hoping for that? They want a great emotional experience. They just want to feel something. They just want some kind of spiritual high. They want to be whipped up into a frenzy. And if that is all the church shoots for, it's missed the very first priority of the church. Because Peter did not say that emotional experience was enough. No, he taught them. He told them the truth. He gave them doctrine. He gave them the teaching. And the doctrine, my brothers and sisters, changed their lives. This is where many people make the claim they don't want teaching, they don't want doctrine because doctrine divides. Doctrine separates and makes people angry and upset, the claim of some. They say doctrine doesn't give people the warm fuzzies that they are looking for, it only makes them more agitated. Look at what the word says, my friends. Look at what the Bible says. It says here that doctrine doesn't divide. No, doctrine, teaching, is the very thing that unifies them and brings them together. It's what binds them together. It is the central aspect of the life of a true, healthy, devoted church. You minimize doctrine, you marginalize the teaching of God's word, and you completely gut the church. There's nothing left. You're left with a shell, a building. That's it. This is why our devotion to doctrine is so crucial, so vital. Are you devoted church to doctrine, to the apostles' teaching, to the teaching from the Word of God? Do you see it as absolutely necessary for your spiritual life? Do you want to hear what God's Word says? Do you long to hear it, to know it? To feed on it, to be satisfied by it. Jesus in his ministry said many hard things. And after one set of teaching in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, many people no longer followed him. They couldn't handle his teaching. And it says this in John 6. Verses 66-69. through After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Would we say that? To whom shall we go? Where else shall we turn? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal lives. And those are the words that we are desperately wanting to know. And so we make every effort to sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word. Number two. As Christ's church, we are devoted to fellowship. As Christ's church, we are devoted to fellowship. Fellowship. There are times in life that stick into our memories because we're singled out. Those times when it becomes obvious that we are different. I remember not too long ago uh, sitting with local pastors at a coffee shop and it sticks into my mind because I was singled out. It became known that I was the only pastor there in that group of pastors who didn't have the word church in the name of our church. (laughs) Every other pastor had the name church in their name, but we didn't. We had Grace Bible Fellowship. Now, I'm not here this morning to say that we should change our name. I like the word fellowship. It's a good word, a biblical word. It's a word that should describe us. It It was what the first church was devoted to. I wonder, though, sometimes if, we can be prone to watering down what the word fellowship means. So, our word fellowship means nothing more than eating together. Or, fellowship is the warmth of a church. Friendliness is not fellowship. Shaking hands isn't fellowship, not biblical fellowship. The word fellowship means that you have something in common with others. There's a common bond that unites you together, and so it is with us. There's a common bond which unites us, and that common bond is Jesus Christ. The common bond is our unity in Jesus Christ. That's what true fellowship is centered upon because we have such a strong bond in Jesus Christ. It means that we want to be together. We want to meet. I am amazed by these verses because what hits me is that these believers were not forced into these devotions. No, they did them willingly. They wanted to do them, and they gave themselves to them for the glory of God. It wasn't a had to, it was a get to. And so it is something, I believe, that is still revolutionary in our day. The believers of the first church wanted to be together. They wanted to meet together. They couldn't wait to meet together. Nothing could stop them from getting together. Their bond, their union with Jesus Christ was so great, was so important was so amazing that when the opportunity to, to come together was available to them, they seized it, and they reveled in it, and they loved it. They didn't want to miss what the Lord was doing in their midst. I wonder if that would ever be a fear for us, not meeting together, that I might miss what the Lord is going to do. I might miss. The Lord's going to work this Sunday when we get together and I might miss it and I don't want to miss it. Because let me tell you my friends if you come to me afterwards and you say I missed it I can't reproduce that. I can't make it happen again. If you miss the Lord when he does something and let me tell you I believe the Lord is going to do something here and you don't Want to miss it. And I haven't said this yet, but this is very important. I believe the best for Grace Bible Fellowship is yet to come. So let me ask you they devoted themselves to fellowship, and why should it be any different for them as it is for us today? Would you say, well, they weren't busy like we are today. Our lives are so much more filled with stuff that we can't devote ourselves to fellowship like they did because we're busy. Would you say, well, they didn't really have a life. That's why they got together in fellowship, because they didn't have a life. They didn't have anything important to do. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have entertainment. They were bored out of their minds. So they might as well have fellowship together. Or would you say, well, it's just because they were lonely, poor, miserable wretches. They didn't have any friends. They didn't have any social outlet. They were loners. so They had to get together. Or would you even say, well, they didn't have the advances of technology. Now I'm able to listen to the Bible teachers over the Internet. I'm able to watch services over the Internet whenever I want to. These people couldn't do that, so they had to get together. What is it? What excuse might you put in here as to why fellowship, getting together, going to church as we say, coming together in the bond of Jesus Christ should be more important to them than it is to us? It shouldn't be, my friends. None of these excuses are valid. None of them stand. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir one, an up, one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why did the writer of Hebrews have to say, and do not neglect to meet together? Because some were neglecting to meet together. Is a pitfall that we need to be warned about. Now, you may be getting upset at this point. You may be thinking, don't, don't judge me, pastor, don't judge me and my reasons for attending or not attending church, to which I would say, I don't judge you. When I became a pastor, I discovered a new phenomenon that I had not known about before. Somehow people think I am the church attendance police. They think they need to give me the reasons for why they can't be here on Sunday or provide a good reason why they have to be away. I didn't become a pastor to be the church attendance police. And there's a reason that I don't judge, and it's a very simple reason because you judge yourselves. You judge yourselves because your fellowship with each other, your devotion to getting together with the church, is, an indir- is, a- is a direct correlation with your fellowship with Jesus Christ. If you have fellowship with Jesus Christ, if you are truly walking close with Him, then you will be devoted to the fellowship within the church. If you say that you have fellowship with Jesus Christ... But you are not devoted to fellowship in the church. You are deceiving yourself. Listen to 1 John 1, verses 5-7. through This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him. With God? Isn't that what you expect it to say? If God is light. And you say you have fellowship with God, but you walk in darkness, you lie and do not practice the loot. But if, if, if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. We would expect it to say, God, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you? But what is, what is John's point here? John's point is that if you have fellowship with God, then you will have fellowship with one another. Those two things are married together. You cannot divorce them. I heard a story from one pastor who had a particular member of his church who was gone for uh, the whole summer, three months. Three months, he didn't see him. And the man came back, and he said, Pastor, I just I just want to thank you for understanding that I was gone for three months. And the pastor replied, I never said I understood. The devotion to fellowship was put on display. In the church, and we see that here in these verses. How do we see that these churches were devoted to fellowship? Well, we see it here in verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's that idea in common, that's the same word that we get that idea of fellowship from. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So here we see this fellowship, this unity, this common bond that they have now being fleshed out. I mean, they put it on display. And how do they put it on display? They care for one another. They care for people in the church It says they had all things in common, they were selling possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to those who were in need. And most likely, in the context here, those people were people within the church, people that they were fellowshipping with, who were suffering, who were in need, that when they saw someone in their fellowship who was in need, they would sell something. That first word there of selling their possessions could also be referred to as real estate, And in fact, as we go on into Acts, we see some people were selling real estate to help other believers who were in need. Some have seen these verses and argued for communism. Others have argued for socialism from these verses. But those who do so miss the point because these people did this willingly. They willingly gave to one another. They weren't forced to give. No, they wanted to give. They looked for opportunity to give. And before we think here that they sold everything, that's not what the text says. The text doesn't say they sold everything. I mean, in a few verses, we're going to see that they still had homes that they met in. But there is no doubt that they were looking out for one another Their fellowship was so close, was so intimate, they knew particular needs of the people around them, and they committed themselves to making sure that they met those needs. What made their fellowship so powerful was the measure of their sacrifice. They gave, and they gave generously. Why? What would make make them give so generously? What would make us? Give so generously. What would make us open our hand to one another? What is the greatest motive to generosity? Is it me telling you to be generous? No. The greatest, most supreme motive to our generosity is God's grace. It's God's generosity toward us which should be compelling enough for us to be generous with one another. When you comprehend the immensity of God's grace, what God has given you, what favor he shows you, even though you don't deserve it, even on your best day, when you are overwhelmed by God's grace, it causes you to behold the glory of God and generosity that he has given to you, and it causes you to act like him and be generous to one another. Show me a willing, cheerful, generous giver, and I will show you one who understands the grace of God and what life is really all about. These were people who had learned what it says in Luke uh, chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus says this, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Is this the kind of fellowship that you are devoted to and that you put on display for one another? Number three this morning, as Christ's church, we are devoted to the Lord's Supper. As Christ's church, we are devoted to the Lord's Supper. Let's go back for a moment in the life of Jesus Christ. You might remember this event that takes place. Jesus is by a town called Bethsaida. He's outside of the town. He's in a place that it's called a desolate place, so there's not much else around, but there's a crowd with him. A crowd of at least 5,000 people are with him. And he's there and he's teaching them, and the day is coming to a close. And the people are hungry. The disciples realize that they're hungry. And they say, Jesus, what should we do with all these people? We need to feed them. And so Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They say, well, all that we have are five loaves of bread and and two fish. What does Jesus do? He takes the food, he blesses it, and then he breaks the loaves of bread, passes it out, and the people are satisfied. Why does he do that? That's a great lesson on sharing I don't think so. It's an illustration of what Jesus Christ himself is about to do. Think about it again. Later on in Luke, the very end of Luke, Jesus Christ has risen again from the dead. He has two disciples who are on the road to a city named Emmaus. Jesus appears to them there on the road, but they don't recognize him as the risen Lord. And they begin a conversation as they travel together. And Jesus teaching these disciples even how all of the scriptures are about him and point to him. And they, they're coming to the end where they're going to part ways, but the disciples plead with him saying, stay with us, have a meal with us. So Jesus says, all right, I'll have a meal with you. And so they sit down at the meal. The disciples still don't know at this time that this is Jesus. But something happens there during that meal. It says Jesus takes the bread... And he blesses it, and he breaks it. And what happens? What happens the moment that Jesus does that? The eyes of the disciples are opened, and they recognize it's the Lord. One other thing now. Go back a little bit in the book of Luke to that night before Jesus is crucified. There in the upper room with his disciples. What does he do? takes the bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it. He says, this is a representation of my body. This is an illustration of what I'm about to do. I am about to give my life for you. Take this bread, drink this cup, to remember what I've done, to proclaim my death. And to look forward to that day when you will have this meal again with me in heaven. Where do we see the Lord's Supper here in, in these verses? You see it there in the second half of verse 42 to the breaking of bread. That's this shorthand idea of the Lord's Supper or communion. It was a time they came together to proclaim Jesus' death until he returned. It was an important element to their fellowship because it reminded them why they were together. It was the Lord's sacrifice for them, the body that was nailed to the cross, the blood that flowed from His hands, His feet, His side. It was a visible picture of the gospel. And not only... Is it important for us to hear the gospel proclaimed? It's also important for us to visibly see the gospel proclaimed. And that's what we see every time we celebrate around the Lord's table. It's a visible representation to help instill in our minds the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of our Savior who gave himself on the cross, who rose again from the dead. This is the Savior that we have received by faith. We've taken, we've eaten, and we're satisfied in him. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And it appears here in our verses that this partaking of the Lord's Supper, this breaking of the bread happened in two various ways. It seems the first instance here in verse 42 is a more formal time of breaking bread, of having the Lord's Supper together. But a little later down in verse 46, together and breaking bread in their homes, it appears that there was times of more informal get-togethers as they broke bread in their homes that they would also take communion during this meal together. So both in more formal times, more others in more informal times, but they were devoted to breaking bread, to the Lord's Supper, to communion. And that's the picture that we should long to see. And when we have the opportunity to be a part of that, that we should want to be a part of it that it's a vital picture to our life. It's not an extra, it's not an add-on, but it is one of the key distinctions that makes a church a church because it's regularly devoted to proclaiming visibly the gospel through communion. Do you see your devotion and participation as a necessity for your spiritual health and for the health of this church? Number 4 this morning as Christ church we are devoted to prayer. As Christ church we are devoted to prayer. Great theme in the book of Acts. We've already seen it in chapter 1. We'll see it more again and again, but the church was devoted to prayer. And I think we even see this a little bit here in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together, uh, later on we see that oftentimes they went to the temple at the hour of prayer. So it could very well be that as they are going to the temple, they're going there to pray together. And they, again, prayed willingly. They're not forced to pray. They were not threatened to pray. No, it was their heart's desire to pray together corporately to fellowship with God, to commit everything to Him, to praise Him for what He had done and for what He was doing in their midst, to ask for strength, for courage, for boldness. A praying church is a healthy church. It is a vibrant church. It is a church that is exactly where God wants it to be, completely looking to Him and realizing that everything depends on Him. And this is one way that they're praising God. It's one important way that they were worshiping God. And I believe this is one way that you know that the Lord is working in your midst because everyone in the church is devoted to getting together to pray. You want to spend time together in prayer. Maybe today if you are a Christian here and you're struggling and saying, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray. First, I would say, go to that model prayer that Jesus gave us. But second, I might say, it could be as simple as this. When was the last time you expressed to God your thankfulness for His salvation? That He saved you? And then, how maybe you should pray for those people who do not yet know Christ. We will never be a truly devoted church if we fail to devote ourselves to prayer, if we let other things get in the way of prayer. To close, I want to draw our attention to the very last verse this morning, chapter 2, the very last sentence there even. And the Lord added... Their number day by day, those who were being saved. What was the outcome of the church's devotion? People were saved. How? They were saved because the truly devoted church could not keep the message of the gospel to themselves. People were saved because the church evangelized. It bore witness to the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord. And people saw a difference in them. They saw the kind of love that separates the disciples of Jesus Christ apart from everyone else. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. While the church evangelized, while the church proclaimed the message of the gospel, ultimately it was the Lord who saved them, and it's the same for us today. We go out and proclaim the message, but in the end, it's the Lord who saves them. It's the Lord who draws them to himself, who rescues them. Is the risen Lord continuing to act? What do you see here in these verses? The Lord added. It was his action. It was his doing. These people were added to their number by the Lord. They did not add themselves to the number. They were not multiplying themselves. No, it was the Lord Jesus Christ rescuing and multiplying. It was the Lord Jesus Christ saving and adding. And these people were added to the church. The Lord brings people into the church. And it completely destructs that idea that somehow you can accept and trust in Jesus Christ out there on your own and stay out there on your own. Because that's not what we see. We see people who are saved, and then what happens? They're brought into the church. They become members of the church. That's why we don't say, hey, we're so glad that you're saved. Now you can just stay out there on your own. You can do your own thing. You don't really need the church. You don't really need to be a member of the church. You don't really need to be a part of Christ's body. We do not say that because when the Lord saves, he brings them into his church. They are part of a local fellowship of believers. And they are all in. Maybe this morning the Lord is working on you. Maybe as you hear these things you say, I don't know what this is like because I don't know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that we've been proclaiming this morning he's the the name that we've been lifting up this morning that he lived the perfect life that we should have lived that he died the death that we deserve to die that he took the punishment for our sins upon the cross but being that perfect sacrifice death could not hold him down but god raised him up from the grave on the third day and now our savior is alive forevermore And anyone now who would come and they would put their trust in Him, they would be all in with Jesus Christ. They would say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to be forgiven of my sins, of which there are many, of which it is a burden upon my life, of which I am guilty of. That you would say, I repent of that lifestyle, that living, those sins, and now I turn completely and trust Jesus Christ to forgive me. That he does. And he welcomes those who call upon his name, who confess him as king and lord into this family. And the Lord added to their number day by day. The Lord added people. The Lord added souls daily. Daily. They didn't count the number of people by weeks. They didn't count the number of people by months. They didn't count the number of people to be saved by years. They didn't count the number of people the Lord added to their number by decades. No, it was so frequent, so often, so consistent that it was a daily occurrence. When the believers woke up in the morning, they didn't ask, will you save someone today, Lord? No, what did they ask? How many will you add it to our number today, Lord? They didn't have to wait to see the Lord work. They saw him work day after day after day. Dear brothers and sisters, is this our heart's desire? To see the Lord bring people into his flock daily. Would there come a day soon when we would wake up and ask the Lord, how many people today, Lord, are you going to save? And is it our desire to see the Lord add people? Many, many people to deliver many people from the grip of sin and death that holds onto them but how is it going to happen by magic by lightning that strikes them by some mystical vapor fairy pixie dust no it's going to happen when the devoted church of the Lord Jesus Christ opens its mouth and says let me tell you about Jesus and it's only as we do that day by day, that we might begin to ask, how many today, Lord? How many today? Let's pray. Lord, we plead with you that you would add to your church, to even this church, daily, those who are being saved. And give us the courage, give us the strength, give us what we need to speak those words of the gospel, to speak those words of truth, to speak those words that can bring life to people's lives that we might see many people turn from darkness and sin to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and find new life, find eternal life in Him. Lord, I pray that You would take Your Word today. You would plant it deep in us that you would shape and fashion us into your likeness, that we might be that devoted church, like the first church was devoted to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.